Father, our brothers and sisters around the world who are not free to worship. We pray, God, that your spirit would continue to be tangibly present with them as well as you grow your church in places that desperately need to hear good news. So God, for the time we have left this morning, we pray that you would help me to clearly communicate your word. And I pray that each and every person in this room will uh, leave with the sense that you have spoken to them in a real and tangible way. Lord, we love you. And it's good to know that you first loved us. So be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take another moment and welcome you to uh, this Advent, this Christmas season here at Sanctuary. It is one of my favorite seasons of the year, one of my favorite times of the year, full of traditions, the music, the lights, the trees. Uh, Pastor Rose and I uh, had a conversation this week to figure out, is it poinsettias or poinsettias? Uh, Depending on how fancy you're feeling at the moment, um, you decide. But it really is an incredible season, an incredible time of the year. And today is the first Sunday of the Advent celebration here at Sanctuary, where we as followers of Jesus work to center ourselves and remember what this season is all about. But if I'm honest, it kind of feels like we're already late to the game a little bit. Thanks to retailers, marketing, advertising, and technology, it feels like I've been Christmas shopping since the day after Valentine's Day. It's like they just took the teddy bears and the chocolates and just shoved them into the back room and then threw up Christmas trees the day after Valentine's Day. And I don't mean that as a knock to retailers because I actually appreciate them. They are incredibly good at their job. Has anybody been to Target lately? And I want to say up front, I love Target. As my favorite preacher, Priscilla Shire, says, the Lord's anointing is at Target. (laughs) I feel close to the Lord when I'm there. Um, I went to Target the other day, and uh, I love the new store design they have in Target. The lights are incredible. They're just bright. There's some new floor plans that they have there. They've upgraded the men's section, and now they sell grown men's sizes at Target. What? Grown man sizes now at Target? I walked in the store and my wallet like jumped out of my pocket and went running down the aisle and I tried to chase it and I got a little winded so I I just told my wallet, look, you go ahead, I'll meet you at the register. You you do your thing. I'll, I'll be here when you get back. That didn't really happen for some of you deep people in the room. But my my point, my larger point today is that sometimes it can feel like the last voice you get to hear when it comes to the meaning of Christmas is the church. For most pastors, when they finally get the chance to offer the Jesus is the reason for the season message, their congregation is looking back at them in the same way some of you are looking at me like, that's a great message, pastor, but I've spent everything already. It's all gone. And if that's you, I want to pray, I hope you kept the receipt blessing over you today. But for all of us, my hope is that over the next four weeks, as you hear from our teaching team, that you will grab a hold of and be transformed by this biblical truth, that the greatest gift that the world has ever known 
came to a small town where there was no mall. And Amazon Prime did not deliver. The greatest gift that the world has ever known was Jesus, who is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, as we will hear about today. And so this year we're calling our Advent series, Bearing the Weight, Bearing the Weight, and you'll see it there on the screen. It's not misspelled. We didn't fall asleep at the wheel. It's a play on words. Because Advent is a season where we, as the people of God, are called to wait, to anticipate, to participate, to prepare. And we rejoice because the Messiah has come, and the Messiah will come again. Amen. So Advent is a season where we get to wait, but Advent is also a season where we think about the weight, the W-E-I. G-H-T, and not those pounds that we might put on between now and New Year's to jumpstart our fitness plan. When I talk about this weight, I'm talking about Advent being a season where we get to consider the weight of sin. What was it that made the first Advent necessary? Why did the Messiah even have to come in the first place? That's what we get to consider together today. And so we're calling this message, what were they waiting for? What were they waiting for? And I want to invite you to join me in your Bibles in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse number 1. We'll read through verse 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Here's what the Word of God says. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In this passage, God speaks to his people through the prophet Isaiah and offers what clearly should be seen to them as good news. This is good news coming to the people of God. But it feels, though, as if we've walked into the middle of a conversation that's been going on before we got there. What is it that made this good news necessary? Verse 1 says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those 
who were in distress. What is the nevertheless about? What was going on that says we needed to be delivered from distress, that the people needed to be delivered from distress? That nevertheless there suggests to us that something of importance was previously said that relates to this good news, something that makes this good news even necessary. Nevertheless suggests that this blessing is coming but it's coming in spite of something else that also needs to be identified. And so in seeking to understand what was said beforehand, we look earlier in the book of Isaiah, and I want to invite you to join me in Isaiah chapter 1, and I want you to see with me our first point for today, which is the weight of rebellion. See with me in Isaiah chapter 1, the weight of rebellion. Isaiah chapter 1 says this, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw doing the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager. But Israel does not know, my people does not understand, do not understand. Verse 4, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore, verse 5 says. Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed and bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burn with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. So to the question of what was wrong that necessitated this good news coming in chapter 9, verse 4 of chapter 1 says it pretty clearly to us, that the people of God had forsaken him and they had turned their backs on him. That was pretty straightforward. But I want us to consider this morning, why is it that Isaiah chooses to use this other language, this colorful language that is so rich and complex to paint a picture of the people's rebellion? Isaiah says in verse 2 that the, the, he, he paints them as children who have been brought up, and when they're grown, they turn against their parents. He compares them to a, a donkey and an ox, two animals who are not thought to be very smart. And he says to them that even they understand more than Israel understands. In verse 5, he paints a very horrid picture of a body that is beaten and broken and injured. And he says there are wounds everywhere and there are welts everywhere. And instead of going somewhere to get treatment, the body is just sitting there. In fact, doing things that would bring about more injury. Verse number 8 of Isaiah chapter 1, I love the way the message translation describes it. He says that the daughter of Zion is deserted, and he describes her like a turtle-down shack on a dead-end street. 
like a tar paper shanty on the wrong side of the tracks, like a ship that has been abandoned even by rats. Why does Isaiah do the most in this passage? Why, why does he go so far to paint this kind of picture of Israel's rebellion? On the surface, Isaiah's words seem harsh. And if we're not careful, Isaiah will become the offender in this passage. Why is Isaiah being rude? Is it really such a big deal? Why does he have to go so far? Brothers and sisters, Isaiah is not the offender in this passage. He's simply the prophet that God uses to help Israel see their condition. The words that you read here, even though they may seem harsh, these words are rooted in love. These are covenant words. God had set Israel apart, intent that through them he would bless the world. And Deuteronomy 28 offers a great explanation of the relationship between God and this nation that he would use to bless all the other nations of the earth. But over and over and over again, Israel turned away from God, perverting justice, oppressing the poor, turning to idols, running to the arms of their enemies for protection, and refusing over and over to trust in God. And the question I have for us today is how far removed are we from Israel? Somebody might say 6,223 miles. That would be correct. But if we took a spiritual inventory... How have we, like Israel, turned away from God? What is the weight of rebellion that we feel in our own lives and in our world today? When we look at the world today, like really take the time to look at our world, is our world vastly different than the condition that Israel was in in this moment? I was sitting in my office uh, late the other night, Wednesday night I believe it was, trying to work on this message, and I heard a young man's voice begin to scream in a very agitated way. And I have, our office is, is weird because the sidewalk is high and our office is low, and so I have a little stepladder, believe it or not, that I step on so I can look out our window. And so I went to my stepladder first, and I can see a young man, probably in his early 20s, screaming at a young lady. So I, I left my office, went out front, and by the time I got to the front door, there was a security guard also approaching this young man. And the two of us together went and approached him. But as we got closer, we realized, based on what he was saying, this was somebody he knew. This young man was screaming at the mother of his children, and, and his perspective was that she had a drug problem, and he said that she stole some money to come and get alcohol and other things from next door. On the surface, it looked like another guy screaming at a girl, but the rage in his voice, he was screaming at her, you can't do this anymore. You have kids now. You can't keep doing this. This young man was screaming out of love. He was screaming trying to save someone. What does the message of Advent say to that young man? What does the message of Advent say to that young lady? 
although the circumstances are very different, Isaiah uses his words to paint a picture of despair and conflict and loss and darkness. And although the worlds are thousands of miles apart, I ask us today, how different is our world than the one Isaiah painted here? I hope in your body, like physically, you can feel a bit of the weight of rebellion. Sin is serious. It's not just an idea. It affects people's day-to-day lives, and I hope we don't quickly run to celebration in the Advent season and forget the reason why Advent was needed in the first place. Isaiah's first task as the prophet was to hold up a mirror and help the people to see their condition. But it was in light of that same truth that the second task of Isaiah's prophecy came to bear. And that's the second thing I want us to see today, and that is the announcement of good news in the midst of really dark darkness. Advent draws our attention, yes, to the weight of rebellion and to the cost of sin, but it does not leave us there hopelessly. Advent draws our attention to an announcement, to a proclamation that says, even in our disobedience, God has never forgotten about his people. Amen. Isaiah verses chapter 9, verse 1 through 5 says these words to us again. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire." God's people were creative in finding their way into all sorts of brokenness and disrepair. They found themselves suffering the effects of their own disobedience. And God didn't wait for them to pull themselves out of their, out of their situation. He didn't wait for them to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. God didn't tell them to holler at me when you get your stuff together. Right there in the midst of their mess, God sends a word through the prophet that says, I am with you. God told them that deliverance was on the way. That's that's the message of Advent. And if you don't feel the weight of the first part, how do you really celebrate the second part? The deliverance would be spiritual. Moving from spiritual darkness to walking in the light. Moving from conflict with themselves and everybody around them to really embracing God's shalom. Moving from loss and scarcity to to a, a spirit of abundance. Moving from captivity, both physical and mental, to liberation. Moving from despair to a place of perpetual rejoicing. 
Here, here's what Leanne Sh- uh, Younger, a covenant pastor, a writer, an African-American woman, said in one of the resources that our denomination published for Advent. She says that this announcement makes it known that the poor, the downcast, the weak would not be permanent losers in God's society. Real prisoners, whether captive to others or economics or inner wounds or grief, would finally be free. Don't miss this. To be born poor in a capitalist society almost guarantees you're going to be poor forever. It, it means that you are a permanent loser in many ways in the eyes of many. But the good news of Advent says that that's not the case, that we are more than our circumstance. And friends, that's good. I, I don't know how many of you in this room have ever been poor. That's good news. That's, that's the greatest gift that you can ever receive, to know that your worth and your dollar worth, your, 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 your dollar value are not the same thing, that there's something more to you granted to you by God. That's good news. Isaiah reminds us that God is not simply concerned about our souls. He's concerned about stepping into etern- out of eternity into reality so that all of God's people can be free. And that should not be radical, to say that all of God's people should be free. Christmas can be a stressful season. As a parent, you're wondering, will I get my kid the right gift? Or will they throw a tantrum when they open it up and screw up the whole day? You're thinking about your spouse. Will I get them the right thing? Will they love me for it? Or will they just quietly be upset because I didn't get the right thing. And I know some of you in this room are wondering, what in the world am I going to get Pastor Edron for Christmas? Like, what do you get a guy who has everything already? That's a line from a movie. I don't have. Listen, I want to ease the pressure. Don't get me anything for Christmas, all right? I don't need it. Because the good news of Advent is all I need a reminder throughout the year that deliverance has come. That's all I need for Advent and every other holiday. And so save your money. Don't buy me anything. But throughout the year, from time to time, find me and remind me that the Savior has come, that God loved us enough to send a Savior. That's the only encouragement I need because when life is beating you up, Throwing body blows, a cologne set and a scarf set will do nothing for you. But helping someone to remember that God loved you enough to enter into reality out of eternity and has come in the form of his son, that's the kind of gift that keeps on giving. That's the good news we need for ourselves and for one another. Isaiah shows us the weight of rebellion. He also shows us the announcement of good news. The final thing Isaiah shows us before we move to our communion today, I want us to see together that we are in a season of bearing the weight. 
We are in a season of bearing the weight. When it comes to Advent, your perspective on God will shape the posture that you take when it comes to waiting. There are many who will hear a message like this and will remain completely uninterested in anything that has been said today. There are some who will hear this message and they will go into despair because it has made them think too much about what's wrong in the world. There are some who will hear it and they will go to fear because they wonder if this is true, how do I get in on it? Maybe I will miss out on this blessing that God has sent through the Messiah. Am I in or am I out? There's all sorts of negative places we can go when we think about Advent. But I want to call us as a congregation to a, a couple different postures. The first is I want to call us to a posture of excitement. I want us to hear that things are broken, but that God is already at work in the world fixing those things. And I want to call us to a posture of excitement to know that the world won't always be broken in the ways that it is today. That's the first posture I want to call us to. I want to call us to a posture also of expectation and anticipation. I want us to go into the world daily looking for the places where God is already breaking into our daily reality. Don't just go about your work, but as you go, look for the places and the ways in which God is already making things new. I want to call us to a spirit of acceptance. Next week, we'll hear a message that reminds us that when, when the announcement of the Messiah came, Israel had an option to receive it or to deny it. I want to call us to accept and say yes to this good news that came to us that the Messiah was on the way. I also want to call us to a posture of preparation. If the good news is true, what must we be doing now in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah? And finally, I want to call us to a posture of generosity. If this good news is actually true, then we would not go through our lives hoarding everything for ourselves. We would actually spend our days blessing others, giving it all away, because when the Messiah is fully come, we won't need anything anyway. He's going to restore what we have and then some. And so what does it mean for us to be generous people as we await the coming of the Messiah? Over these next few weeks, we're going to talk about acceptance, preparation, and generosity and celebration. And that, I believe, when we take on those postures, we will experience Advent in a new and fresh way. And so my prayer for you, as the worship team comes back and we prepare for communion, is that Advent will take on new meaning, no longer stressful, no longer held captive by retailers, even the ones that I like, but that we would over and over again remember what Isaiah shared up with us, that there 
is a weight to sin, that there is good news, that God is already at work lifting the burden of our sins, and that we are in a season of bearing the weight, that we get to respond to God's goodness in a way that impacts our lives and the lives of the people around us. Let's pray.